Salesforce is one of the biggest companies in the world, and they have all kinds of difficult design and engineering problems to solve. How do they do it? We'll find out next. This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hey, everybody. We are excited to have Justin McGuire. He runs product design and user experience at Salesforce with us today. Um, he's got some pretty interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, Justin, how are you feeling today? Doing well. Thanks for having me on board today. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we could get everything worked out schedule-wise. Um, so what's going on at Salesforce these days? What are you working on that's exciting you? Well, you know, one of our, our focus areas, actually, and it's very relevant to right now, literally, this is the thing that's uh, the, the hot topic right now, is how to maintain um, some of the fun of our brand all the way through the product and in a responsible way. You know, we are a tool people use to get their job done. But enterprise software doesn't have to suck, um, as we like to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we've been thinking about the word functional, where you imagine the word at the F-U-N is bolded in that. So functional. Um, ah, how, do nice, we keep, nice. how do we introduce some fun into a very functional tool? And we think that's both valuable to our end users, um, but also kind of creates a moment of differentiation and embodies some of our brand values into the product. Yeah, nice. And I like the uh, kind of usage of the function and functional. Um, yeah. So how are, how's that manifesting itself? Like what kind of things are you doing to, to make that happen? Um, some of it's uh, the very surface level things, like how do we take some of the evolution of our brand, uh, uh, the trailhead characters, you may have seen sort of the mountains and goats and bears and some of the cartoonish elements that we've been introducing into our brand vocabulary. Yep. How do we appropriately introduce that into the product? But it also gets at things like gamification, like animation uh, in, in, as a feedback mechanism, um, uh, whether that's feedback from sort of a click or feedback that you've arrived at a milestone or accomplished a task or maybe hit your sales number for the month or the quarter. Um, so, you know, many of the kinds of things we talk about in the industry, um, uh, but in a very uh, pragmatic, practical application of those theories. Oh, so it's kind of adding a little bit of um, uh, interesting, fun feedback in usage of the application, right? That's right. Yeah, so it doesn't feel as much like an enterprise tools, more of, um, uh, I'm not sure what that category would be, but uh, the tools that you typically see in more small businesses where they, they're actually a little bit easier on the eyes, they're not as clunky, and they, they feel better to use. That's right. It's, um, and it's, you know, it's a challenge for us, I think, relative to most smaller platforms um, that don't offer the level of customization we do. Because, of course, as a platform, you can take and almost completely remove Salesforce um, as, a, as a sort of visual expression from the product and have it be, you know, if, you, if you're Coke, uh, you could have the whole interface be red with right. your logo on it and the word Salesforce would never show up. So how do we leverage things like patterns of interaction, uh, uh, loading, um, uh, the way in which um, the page constructs itself, uh, animation, uh, how do we leverage some of those things to both create um, a sense of joy of use, 
meaningful wayfinding cues and interaction cues and uh, an expression of our brand that carries through such that even if you are bright red and Coke, you'd still know that's a Salesforce product you're using. Yeah, that's a really interesting challenge, I would think, because you've got to think about um, not just how do you express the brand and, and have that in your own UI, but how does that manifest itself across all these other different permutations where it might appear, right? That's right. Yeah. So, um, man, that's a pretty challenging thing. How how are you handling that? I mean, do you do like on-site testing with people at Coke or like how do you know um, if you're developing uh, an interface to accomplish a certain task, how do you know that it's going to hold up in those different environments? Um, well, yeah, it's a it's a bunch of stress testing the system, right? Uh, first, it starts with having a platform mindset that you just, you know, which we've had we we try to hire for, but of course, in our more junior people that we're hiring, say straight out of school, that's something we have to cultivate um, right. and build over time. But bringing that platform like mindset to everything we do, um, you know, we see that as um, the meaty part of the challenge, right? And and you know, it can be sometimes expressed in, in a little bit of arrogance when we talk to uh, or talk about other companies where we say, oh, isn't that cute? They, they just don't have to solve for that. Right? They can just <laughs> they can just do whatever they want and not have to care about the fact that, um, you know, that there's 20,000 users somewhere that would hate that thing. Right. That's right. And, yeah. you know, one way to think about that, like the, a nice analogy that we've all used many times when we talk about platform is Lego. Right. Lego can be put together in a billion different possible ways. And yet you would never look at something built in the Lego platform and not know it's Lego. Right. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, we like that challenge, right? That's a, I think that brings out the best creativity in us. And it is hard. It's a, it is a challenge. Right? Yeah, um, no doubt. So you mentioned people coming straight out of school, you, you kind of have to retrain them or, or shift the way that they approach things. Um, what do you see as like one of the major shifts or, or what kind of things are you having to teach them that they don't get in school? Um, the first is that the, is to see those constraints as a joyful thing, right? Um, right? I think, you know, there's been such a, you know, design and user experience has been elevated in the last 10 to 15 years to a place of, uh, you know, real power in, in the world. And, where the things we celebrate in Fasco and uh, Monocle and uh, Wired, et cetera, et cetera, right, are these sort of singular, one-off, beautiful little things, right? That, you know, and we, we sort of love those consumer products that do one thing really well with a very, very high level of design mm -hmm. execution. Mm -hmm. um, and it is kind of a mindset shift to see the opportunity and the challenge that's present when really we think of it as co-creating with our customers. Um, right. And it's, again, it's not co-creating where we bring them in in an IDEO sort of design thinky kind of way to figure out the one perfect expression of a product. Um, it's that we are co-creating longitudinally always with our customers. They get to make whatever they want with our product. Right. Um, yeah. Cause the answer and, to, can you do that in Salesforce is typically always yes. Right. It's just a matter of customization. That's right. That's right. Exactly right. Uh, and, and when we go to design something, it is really a, uh, uh, uh you know, that's a conversation we even have internally where, Something as simple as, hey, you know, where we have an action bar where 
uh, where we express, where we expose on a, at the top right of a page, a set of functions, um, global functions for that page. Uh, and we've neatly laid out in a, you know, a grid format that there are five buttons in a menu. And well, could there be two rows of 20 buttons? Would we, is there any reason we would say no to that? And it's a challenge because we're, you want to put enough guardrails in place to make doing the right thing easy. Um, but we don't always know what, you know, I'll put in air quotes, the right thing is. Um, right. And for some customers, two rows of 50 buttons might be the right thing, even though for most of the immediate use cases we can think of, that sounds like a terrible idea. Right. Um, that actually might be the right thing, right? Uh, and that's sort of like think about the difference between the dashboard in a in a simple sports car and you know what you see on the flight deck of uh, an A380. Yeah. Uh, so it reminds me, I was talking with um, Aaron Arizari at NASDAQ about something kind of similar. Is they're dealing with people who need to see a very large amount of complex financial data at a glance. So if they were to to approach it from a from a more aesthetic perspective, um, that would be a failed design because the people couldn't get what they needed in the time that they needed it, in the level of efficiency that they're expecting. So I, right. it sounds like you've got a similar problem in that, in some instances of the application, you need a, a much denser interface because the tasks people are trying to accomplish are different. So it's kind of interesting to think through that. It's absolutely, it's really, uh, it may, I think it makes it fun, right? It makes it fun to think about, um, what's possible. And frankly, we love it when we, we go out to see a customer and see some crazy thing they've built. Uh, I mean, we had a customer come in and present to us, uh, uh, two days ago who has leveraged the IOT platform to do just some amazing stuff, stuff we hadn't even thought about hooking up yet. And, uh, you know, really, it's like a dream customer because you, you think, wow, you're showing us the way. You're opening up new conversations and new ways of thinking about the product that we've built. Uh, and that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, it must be. So that's actually kind of an interesting topic is is how much is the design decision process um, or the, the build process, if, if you may, driven by customer feedback? And how often are you going out and collecting that information and, and how are you doing it? Um, well, it's, it's actually hugely driven uh, by customer feedback, and we have a variety of channels. I'd say um, in some ways relative to the companies I've been a part of or that I consulted with when I was at Frog, we are you know, a leader in our capacity uh, to listen uh, across many, many channels. We have all manner of listening devices out there. Um, I'd say the challenge we face, and I think I suspect we're not alone in this. I think that anybody who who is at the forefront of listening, um, you then find yourself in a, a challenge of signal to noise ratio. Yeah, of um, course. And uh, and where you then have to create a series of uh, decision constructs for how do you weight the feedback you're getting, right? Mm -hmm. um, which channel is more important, which trumps which, how do you make decisions based on this data? It's great to have the data. That's obviously the first step. Um, and, and that all, that goes even to things like we have a thing called idea exchange, um, where we invite customers to log in and post ideas. 
Um, sometimes it's with a screenshot. Sometimes it's just a description. It's all manner of things we get. And a uh, customer uh, posts an idea, and then the community votes on that idea. And, and then when that, when that uh, idea gets a certain, achieves a certain threshold of likes, if you will, um, we commit at that threshold to actually then go assess, is this something we can and or should do? And, and respond to the community. So I forget right. what that, to be honest, I forget the number. Let's say it's 20,000. At 20,000 uh, ID exchange points, we will then pick that idea up and do an assessment internally. Um, and then to come back to the community and say, we can't do it for this technical reason, or we're not going to do it because um, whilst it seems like a good idea, that would actually break our, our number one value of trust. It might introduce a security risk. Or we would mm -hmm. come back and say, we're going to take this on in release 212. Um, so expect to see that in the spring of this year. Right. Um, yeah, so it sounds like it's kind of a, like a Reddit-style community upvote for things that you exactly want to see right. in the application. That's exactly right. And, you know, they've been doing that for a long time, which, again, I would argue is really co-creating with customers. They're not using the trendy design terminology around that, but that's... That's a great example. But of course, the, the flip side is it is a self-selected group of people and right. they bring, you know, as a result, there's a certain measure of bias to that. And so we shouldn't just take everything they say. Um, you know, what is the quiet person in the corner who's not posting uh, their idea? Think? Yeah, or the person want? who's too busy to get involved in that process. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So how are you weighting the data you collect through that community versus um, in-person feedback and, and other data points? To be honest, it's a very active conversation at the leadership team level. I, I think um, one of the amazing things about Salesforce, you'll hear people uh, refer to it as the world's largest startup. And while it's clearly not a startup anymore, um, there are behaviors and internal mechanisms that when you first come here, especially if you've been at a bigger company, this can feel very wild west because there isn't sort of an algorithmic rule or this person decides or here's the six-step process. Right, it's like not a real little, rigid hierarchy. That's right. Yeah, no, it's very much an active debate that happens amongst the senior leadership of the product organization. Um, and uh, it's a, a very active and healthy debate where we're encouraging people to bring both their passion and their various expertise to the table. As I've said before, you know, trust is our number one value, right? When you have companies like American Express trusting us with their data on our cloud servers, you know, if, yeah, if you can't mess that trusted, up. Yeah, it's like a, <laughs> yeah, that's an extinction yeah. level event to mess that up. And yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So, so we we take that extraordinarily seriously, and and so you know we we have long conversations, and and often the biggest thing that that pushes out. Uh, the ability for us to execute an idea is whether or not we can actually do it as part of the platform versus a sort of one-off point solution. Um, so do you mean you know, like a, like custom for an individual customer or company? Um, it's more that if we're going to build a new component, we want to be able to do it in a way that all of the products in the Salesforce ecosystem can take advantage of, as opposed to authoring it in, you know, uh, in, in a way that is used only in the service desk, for instance. Right, right. right? So you're thinking um, of it kind of like a plug-and-play app mentality for some of those features? That's right, exactly. It, it literally needs to be a component that any, any of our, anybody in our ecosystem can reuse because we actually eat our own dog food. So the, the components we build for, say, something like Lightning 
um, we that we expose to the outside community that they can use to build custom apps. Those are the exact same components we are using ourselves. Right. Um, so we are we are truly eating our own dog food. Yeah, that help keeps you honest, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. But it makes it sometimes feel slow, right? Because I mean, the reality is, as, as I as a intern once had a realization and said to a room full of people at the end when he was doing sort of a retrospective of his time as an intern, he said, you know. Like this is the only place where I could put a combo box on a page. And the reality is that combo box could be hooked up to the data set in such a way that uh, very easily, by the way, by an admin, such that the end user clicks on the combo box and it has to go fetch 50,000 rows. And mm-hmm. and then of those 50,000 rows, it also then knows it has to know that the user who clicked on it only has the rights to see – 25,000 of the things in that 50,000 row data set. And it all has to do all of that in a way that's performing and, you know, under a second. Um, Yeah. That that feels responsive, right? That's right. That feels responsive. And, you know, that's a, that's a level of scale um, that's uh, fairly unique here, right? It's not that say Amazon doesn't have a similar scale problem, but Amazon doesn't let an admin go in and drop 40 of those combo boxes on a page. Right, and have to worry about the the performance hit as a result. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So that, that's kind of an interesting thread too. Is is how do the design and the engineering teams collaborate and make decisions on what can and can't be built and and how it should be built? Um, pretty closely. You know, one of the shifts we've been making in the time I've been at Salesforce has been to put our designers closer to the Scrum teams. Do you mean like physically or organizationally or what? Uh, physically and also from a process standpoint, um, uh, getting them, uh, getting a, a level of ownership um, for the designers in uh, in sprint reviews, uh, in in the process, right? Moving uh, moving away from a, a service mentality um, to a partnership mentality, and where. There's greater responsibility and accountability um, for the UX organization. Um, that also means that we've had to invest in and ensure that our designers have a very strong technical basis and understanding the platform, uh, mm-hmm. which takes time, right? There's, uh, there's a great Medium article um, by one of the uh, design heads over at Twitter, whose name I'm going to forget right now, Mike, Mike something, about how... Johnny Ives had, had basically got, the reason he's in in charge is because he stuck around a long time. That in an age where people tend to hop jobs every two to three years, um, or hop yeah, he kind of won the war of attrition, right? Well, but also that you know companies when you want to make the decision, if you want to have the uh, I don't know power or authority or responsibility to own the vision for a product, what you're really asking is for the company to trust your judgment mm-hmm. and in a way that hundreds, sometimes thousands of people's um, livelihood will depend upon. And, and to arrive at a place where you are that trusted takes time. <laughs> you, know? you have to yeah. show a track record of deeply understanding um, the customer, the user, the business, and the technology. And so um, the UX leadership team at Salesforce over this last couple of years, that's, I think, the opportunity was opened to us to take a bigger seat at the table 
But along with that um, came uh, an expectation that we've rapidly upskilled uh, on the areas that weren't just uh, what does a user need, want, and desire, right? But understanding our business and our technology and our customers, uh, even our go-to-market strategy, right? Getting, getting a much broader understanding of all of those things, even though our wheelhouse is still the experience of the product, um, if we want to help steer our product strategy, you have to uh, show a propensity and an empathy for those other dimensions of our business. Right. So it, it seems like um, Salesforce has decided to kind of bake a lot of that design process and, and the iterative thinking through these types of problems and how that those teams collaborate into the just the operational structure of the entire business. That's right. And it's and and there's a deep care, right? I think one of the one of the interesting things about Salesforce is that um, it, uh, relative to other companies I've certainly been a part of, uh, our leadership team, our executive leadership team, we don't really have to argue with them to be customer or user uh, oriented, right? Yeah, I, mean, that's I think huge. many people, many people in the in our in our community in the in the design user experience community have spent their careers having to sort of fight the good fight on educating um, our, our senior most uh, executives in a company on the value of being user-centered, right? right? And that's not the case here. Um, you know, Mark's almost, Mark's almost first question anytime he's shown a product thing is, have we tested this with users? Yeah, um, and that's really powerful. And you can see that um, that definitely leads to an advantage in the way that the product gets used in the market, right? I mean... Obviously, people yeah. have frustrations with any product, and a, a product that has the scale and the number of users that Salesforce does, you know, you're going to have factions of people who feel one way or the other. But overall, I don't think anybody could argue with the success that Salesforce has had. And it sounds like that partially could be rooted in the fact that you've been listening to users all along. It absolutely is. Um, and I think, I think the next challenge from a UX perspective here is that at Salesforce is that as we reach, um, as our products reach a certain maturity, um, the how do I say this? Um, uh, as, and this is true of any any business, right? When 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 there was no car, right? The fact that the first car had thirty eight levers required five hands to operate, and four of the levers were behind you, didn't matter. Um, right. right. It did a new what it like what it did was it offered a new what to the universe when there were 30 cars um, 30 different car companies then and they all did the same what then the differentiation turned to how right how it did those things. Um, and I think it's a mistake to think of design as only being the how um, we have to be concerned with both the what and the how and having a healthy balance. Right. Yep. Yep, exactly. um, very few com very few companies in the world have effectively monetized the how. Um, you know, Apple's a canonical example, but um, you know, you could argue luxury brands generally um, differentiate on the how. Um, but most new sales, most of what companies are trying to push and sell is a what, is that it does a thing that nobody else does, um, and. You got. We are at a point now where, as our product ecosystem starts to mature, and we reach a level of functionality where, um, you know, there aren't massive new what's, let's say. 
Uh, right. Yeah. So it really comes down to the yeah. experience of of getting the task done and how easy and uh, how delightful that is. That's right. Uh, and a business challenge then is how to monetize that. Is how to explain to someone why they should pay us extra money or more money, um, because we made something uh, nicer and easier to use. And Apple themselves struggle with this, by the way. It's very interesting if you watch their product releases. You know, a few few releases ago, they did a product release where they largely didn't sort of announce a brand new shiny physical product. They did a very mm-hmm. heavy they did a heavy software release, and the response from the market was shockingly lukewarm. Um, and if you look, like what they actually delivered was a ton of stuff, a ton of refinements, big and small, that made just using their software ecosystem better. Um, but it was all sort of making something better. It wasn't here's a bright, shiny new what. And yeah, yeah, and it was it was a bunch of intangibles, right? <laughs> right, and the market really did not like that, which was very interesting. Um, cause the users of the product, of course, loved it. Um, but it doesn't necessarily open up new markets. It doesn't attract necessarily new customers. It makes the customers you have happier. Yeah. Uh, and that's, it's also an interesting point is the people who used the, the new software, once they used it, they saw the value, but communicating that value ahead of time is inordinately difficult, especially right. if you're communicating it to someone who didn't have the, the, usage of the app to compare it with to begin with right that's right and take somebody back to your back to your beginning question when we talked about being functional one of the core things of the of fun is we have we have a product or part of our 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 end-to-end experience of the customer journey user journey is a thing called trailhead which is essentially our learning platform it's where you can go and learn about and, and take small courses Things that take five minutes up to things that take you know several days um, that teach you all manner of things about the product ecosystem. And one of the things we're looking at is how do we integrate micro moments of learning and introduction? And this is quite common in uh, mobile applications and more mature um, consumer web apps where when they roll out an update, the next time you log into that piece of software or open that piece of software, it says, you know, Hey, Jay, since the last time you were here, Awesome Sauce has shown up here, here, and here. And it sort of points out two or three sort of neat, cool things that have just right. sort of magically shown up overnight for you, right? Yep. Um, and, and it does it in know, context, right? That's right. Exactly. And so we're very much starting to do that because we've realized that the, the power of our platform uh, or the complexity, depending on how, you know, glass is half full, glass, glass is half empty, it, it's, there's so much there that the customer journey is something we have to think about starting to choreograph that as a user comes on in the first day for first 10 minutes, first 10 hours, first 10 days, first 10 weeks, first 10 months, right? How do we start to progressively reveal and introduce stuff along that journey? And of course, when we do our three times a year update, how do we let you know that something new and awesome has shown up over in this corner? Without Uh, moving somebody's cheese at the same time. Exactly right. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's, you know, we think that's important because of course, if we've invested time, like I, I, as I've said to my executives, the ROI of a feature that's unused is zero. Yeah, exactly. Um, It doesn't matter how much effort you put into something. If nobody's going to use it or they don't like using it, then you've just wasted it. That's right. And, and a really funny thing for your users, if you ever want to, for the listeners of the podcast, I, I, as a joke, 
made a slide that followed that. So I had a slide that said zero, big zero on the page. And, uh, and my voiceover was the ROI of an unused feature is zero. The next slide was 61%. And 61% of net new features are undiscovered by users. I totally <laughs> made that number up. I literally made it up. I just <laughs> made it up. But I put this up and put it in front of our executives. And what was funny is that the room kind of went, yeah, seems about right. Yeah, sort of, nobody you know, questions no one, it. Nobody questioned it. And then I said, okay, so I totally made that number up. But the fact that none of you really questioned that should scare the crap out of all of you. Right. right? That, like, <laughs> you know, we have a whole, what's our annual you know, budget for the R&D organization? If we're all delivering stuff and 60% of what we deliver is just not ever figured out or used, that's kind of a problem. Right. And you were and, just and okay then, with it? Yeah. I, I think, you know, and, and they're not really okay with it. I don't want to, you know. But there, I mean, it's the point was to spark the conversation. A very healthy right. debate followed that, um, and and yeah, I think that that's led, amongst other things, to uh, a desire to to invest in uh, in a framework that allows us to do that kind of harbor tour of new new things in the product. Um, and uh, you know, that's important, right? That that part of the customer experience and the customer journey is often unattended to. Right. Uh, and again, for us, because it's not a one-off, we have to think about, well, how do we author that sort of tour of the product as a framework that, that not only can we use across all of the products in our ecosystem, but if a developer builds a custom app on our platform, that they can use it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if they're rolling something out to their internal workforce, they can add little tidbits of information here and there, guidance to, to help people through whatever those new features or functionalities might be. That's right. And then you have to design something to help those people understand how to create those little tidbits of information. Exactly. <laughs> now you got it. Yeah, so, so you kind of have this uh, design system inception thing going on. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that um, the... Some of the challenges that you're explaining here are um, kind of at a, a level above what we typically talk about when we think of of systems design or design thinking or any of the you know the buzzwords that are floating around now. So you're, it's, it goes back to what you said at the very beginning. It's more platform thinking than it is application or uh, functionality or feature driven thinking. That's right. Yeah, because you're having to think about things in a much broader context. And you could argue that it's really the long pole of design systems, right? I, I, you know, I think design systems have, for, for all manner of good reason, um, become de rigueur in the last, um, you know, I don't know, five to seven years. I mean, we were doing them for customers at Frog eight years ago. So it's the, right. the concept's been around for a while. They've matured more as development libraries than red lines and, uh, and brand guidelines. Uh, and, and as such are also much more effective. Uh, but I also think that, um, you know, part of what's made the lightning design system so effective at Salesforce is the fact that our executive team on both the product, uh, marketing, uh, and the product platform and our engineering side, all three have really aligned and gotten behind that, right? It's not something that the design team delivered and we kind of hope our own internal audience will use, or we have to go persuade. Um, you know, the engineering team has been totally bought in. Um, and, you know, frankly, that's required uh, us to up-level and bring a different level of rigor to our own process where we sure. had to match 
the level of rigor of our engineering teams in our own delivery model. Um, because they're now, we've created a, a dependency. Our own internal development teams are dependent on this. And so, right. you know, it's, uh, it's a double-edged yeah. sword. But it, it's, you know, I think for folks who are looking to do this internally, if you don't ensure really upfront that you have your development leadership um, way on board as partners of this from the earliest, uh, it's, you could find yourself hitting massive roadblocks later and, uh, and even worse, you could find that you finish building it and it just doesn't really get used. That the story you told yourself about it and, and how it's actually functioning in practice are not aligned. Yeah. And I see that happen, um, more frequently than I would like in a lot of the client companies that we work with is, you know, they start out with a vision and they work towards that vision. And then somewhere along the way, things get derailed. And finding out where that derailment happened is usually quite a struggle and sometimes can get political. I don't know if that's been an issue within Salesforce, but if it has, can you talk to maybe some of the ways that maybe you've looked for certain red flags or um, you monitor processes or look at certain metrics to kind of ensure that things don't get derailed? Um, sure. I mean, I'd say a couple of things. You know, this started in a, in a very kind of startup-y, bootstrappy way. You know, the first version of the Lightning design system and its delivery into Lightning was a very small team stood up and I want to say it was like 15 people and like four months. I mean, it was extremely fast. Um, and uh, Sunka, who runs the UX engineering uh, part of my organization, you know, when I sat down with him after Dreamforce a year and a half ago, I said, okay, um, you are the proverbial dog that's just caught the bus. <laughs> yeah, now what are you going to do? <laughs> right? Like, you guys, you know, it's amazing what you guys accomplished and what you got done with a very small team of very dedicated people. But you, you know, you did a dead sprint for four months. Now you've birthed a child that you have to feed and water and grow and educate for the next forever. And so let, we need to pause and back up and think about what are the process steps we need to put in place? How do we set the organization, your team, and the organization of Salesforce up such that this scales and is, is sustainable for you and the team over the long haul? Um, and that's been kind of a journey over the last year. Um, and, uh, you know, we're actually just about to roll out a new tool that we've built. Uh, it's a Chrome plugin. It's a Chrome, Chrome extension that enables our own developers um, uh, to run an audit of just how correct they are. Like, have they hard-coded anything? Are tags all in the right place? It uh, basically gives them mm, a, 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 a debugger, if you will, uh, against how well they're using the Salesforce Lightning Design System. And this will enable us, over the course of this year, to implement a policy that says you're actually not allowed to check in. If you fail this, um, you're not allowed to check in. And what's great about that level of buy-in from our engineering partners is that it takes user experience out of the out of the wheelhouse of being a bad cop or even having to log bugs. Right? Yeah, that's interesting. So it's it's kind of like um, like a continuous integration tool, right? That you, if things don't pass, then they don't get to to move to the next step in the process. That's right. And it, and it really it really makes compliance with the guidelines um, and, you know, something that's sort of automated and just expected of every developer. 
and and UX teams today that have to spend a lot of time going through and using the product and logging bugs, um, and and are sort of a it's a waste of their time and b it's seen as uh, you know we end up being sort of bad cops. It it saves us the time and we are no longer the bad cops. It's just the way we breathe air here. It's how it operates. And yeah, interesting. That's uh, I'm kind of remembering as, as the shadows coming back to me from the late 90s when I was making um, web authoring tools, HTML editors and that kind of thing, we actually put a test in um, that would run your markup through the W3C validator before it would save and let you know what any errors you had and so on and so forth. And we thought it was a brilliant idea at the time. And um, it certainly seemed to help the web standards movement and all of that. But uh, we got it into beta, and people absolutely hated it because of all the hacks you had to do to make things actually appear the way they wanted to appear because browsers were so crappy, right? That's right. So <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I'm thinking back to that now and thinking, you know, could something like that actually work in today's day and age? And I, I, I'm still not sure that it's possible. But it's it's interesting um, from a theoretical point that the design systems, it sounds like, the design systems and the thinking around the way you solve problems at Salesforce has matured to the point where you can now use a tool like that. And it's actually effective and it's helping not just the people do their jobs day to day, but it sounds like it's actually helping the quality of the product that's being delivered to the user. It does. And and at the end of the day, it also allows us to focus on what matters, right? Um, you know, I, I think that if we've gone through the, pro, the, the trouble of building a design system that's that's a, a code repository, a markup repository, um, you know, why would we like? There should just never be. A, a, like, we should never have to chase down something that isn't correct anymore, right? It's right. Um, so that that allows us to spend our time on the harder problems, which are, um, as I like to say, uh, low friction, high frequency problems. Um, mm -hmm. High friction, low frequency. We're pretty good. Like if you're if you if you're a reasonably good user experience professional, especially a seasoned one who kind of knows how to look around bends and avoid blind alleys, and uh, you know the the sort of coarse problems that uh, that usability problems, we just don't make those mistakes anymore. Um, right. But the things that are sort of uh, like really subtly produce friction, but when I have to do that thing. Uh, you know, six times an hour, times eight hours a day, times 50, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah, the the, the death by paper cut, right? That's right. Like those are really hard because there's not a lot of friction and it's really hard to tease out those problems before you go live. And, and so, but they all, they ultimately, as you said, are sort of death of a thousand paper cuts. And so how do we, like, that's the kind of place that, you know, I'm trying to shift the, mindset of the product organization that when they think about UX and what the role of a UX team should be in quality, it shouldn't be, wow, that color value is wrong or that's four pixels off from the right. Like that's a waste of our time. And we've done, we've deeply documented and enabled the entire organization with a, with a markup library and a set of tools to assess the correctness of your markup relative to that library. So like, just let's not waste our time there. Let's think about QA as it relates to uncovering and, and not how do we not put out in the world those paper cuts? Right. And then, of course, there's a different end, which is UX's value um, to strategic planning and, and product vision, um, which is further upstream. But 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like um, something I tell my team, which is let's let computers do the things that computers are good at, and let's That's solve right. our solve our human brain power for the stuff that computers aren't good at, like you know solving uh, you know what is the right decision for when to roll something out, or which group to roll it out to, or how to roll it out. All of those things that are much more qualitative than quantitative. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah, super interesting. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time. I know that you've got lots of crazy stuff happening over there at Salesforce. So I think we could wrap it up here, but I'd love to get you back on the show at some point in the future and continue talking about this stuff. So um, before we wrap up, any parting thoughts, anything you'd like to say? Um, I just think it's, there's no better time in history than right now to be a UX professional. And, yeah. uh, you know, I hope that your users see that, uh, your users, your listeners, I should say, uh, see that opportunity and, and bring some joy to your work every day. You know, I think we're at this crossover moment where the level of responsibility being handed to us is greater than ever. And it can Mm -hmm. feel daunting and, you know, the sort of what we thought we were going to school to learn and what we do in our practice day to day tend to be quite different, Mm -hmm. but that's an exciting thing. And, um, you know, this is a, what we do is, uh, is of huge strategic value to our companies and, and everyone knows that. And, and so I think the opportunity is in front of us to deliver upon that, to grab the reins, uh, show that we are accountable and responsible at a next level, mm-hmm. um, and help our companies, uh, ultimately deliver products that are of higher quality and more tuned to our users' needs, wants, and desires. Yeah, and if you do that, then that's going to make it much easier for that product or company to succeed and, and actually retain the people who, who use the, the product or service in the first place. That's right. Yep, that's cool. Right. Cool, yeah, good insight. So, uh, Justin, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? If they want to learn more about what's happening at Salesforce or maybe they want to join your team? Uh, feel free to reach out. My, uh, my email is justin.mcguire at salesforce.com. Um, as we talked about earlier on the show, I'm not a big Twitter kid. I think, uh, Twitter's where hate goes to die on the internet. So I don't, I don't love Twitter, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. but email is a, email is a good, uh, a good tool. Feel free to reach out. Um, and, uh, for those of you who are, uh, interested, it's also, you know, go contribute to the lightning design system. It is an open source system. Um, so lightning design, uh, something you can Google, look up, check it out. Um, we'd love your feedback, love your input. Great. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Uh, really appreciate it. Great insights. And uh, look forward to having you back on again. Thanks for having me here, Jay. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Design Driven. We're glad you enjoy the show. Have comments, questions, or an idea that you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us on the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email. And tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said, Good design is good business.